Well, I hope no one will feel shortchanged today, but I only have one sermon for you. So we'll do the one sermon together this morning. And uh, this sermon is rooted in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Would you find your places in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5? And as you do, please stand. These are the words of God to his church. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And these are the words of God. So let us pray. God, as we take a look at your instructions for your church, help us to understand this text. I pray that as we do understand this text, it would fill us with so much joy and thanksgiving for the good gifts that you are continually pouring out into our lives. We know that you are the giver of every good gift, that all good things come down from heaven from you. I pray, Lord, make us a grateful people, a people who seek and find their joy and pleasures in you, in your gospel, in one another, in your church, in the mission that you have given to us in the world. Lord, I pray for us as a church that you would protect us from false teaching. I pray that you would protect us from deceitful spirits and demons. I ask that you would protect us from liars whose consciences have been seared. May we be a people of the truth. And in this vein, Lord, I pray, help me. Help me to be a speaker of the truth. I pray that your Holy Spirit would reveal the meaning of your word to me that I might faithfully share it with your church. And Lord, where I fail to do this, I pray that you'd help me to be quick to repent. I pray that your spirit would take your words and implant them in the hearts of each of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my family and I, we went to um, Autumn Fest. And really it was just one big commercial where local businesses set up booths, but then they set up games as well to make you feel like it's fun to shop at their uh, places of commerce. And, and there was a particular pizza place that were handing out these. And I just got there at the right time of day, and I bought a $2 slice of pizza, and I got $16 worth of free pizza in the, in, uh, the format of these $2 bills. Now, if you were born in the 80s or before the 80s, if you were, let me put it this way, if you were alive in the 1980s, which I always just thought everybody was, that's not the case. You'll, this will look familiar. It's a $2 bill. Uh, anyone here remember when we had $2 bills? Okay, good, good. A lot of you. Now, there was a time where this is a pretty good counterfeit. It does say pizza something on it. I don't want to give them any advertising. Uh, but it has the name of the business on it, so that's kind of a dead giveaway. But the rest of it looks very much like a 1980s $2 bill. 
Now, we're not in very much danger, especially because the back has a map to this place of commerce, to just drop these bills into circulation and think that people would use them to buy anything other than pizza at this particular place. Right? This is not a very good counterfeit today, or probably ever. But there are good counterfeits, aren't there? The government spends a lot of money trying to come up with a note that will not be easily counterfeited. And what, what is the problem with counterfeits? Well, why not? Like if, if we just all agree that you know, this pizza $2 bill coupon might as well buy us anything we want in Canada. If we could get everyone in Canada to agree, why not just drop these into circulation? Why do we have to control good currency and protect against counterfeit currency? What's, what's the problem? Well, one of the things is the government then loses control of how much money there is in the system, and then the value of a dollar is no longer valued at a dollar. And so the, the Bank of Canada and the government can't control the value of our money, so that's a problem. There's other problems, too. If you could produce a good counterfeit, then you could give yourself more money than you've earned, and then that creates inequilibriums in the society in which we live. At the end of the day, if we have an overrun counterfeiting problem in Canada, the whole economy is liable to collapse. Same is true in the church. And I would suggest to you, because today is all about counterfeits, the text, we're not that worried about bad counterfeits. We're not worried about obvious false teaching. Obvious false teaching is not really much of a problem. We have as much problem with obvious false teaching as we have taking one of these $2 coupons and dropping it into the Canadian system. That will be detected at the first transaction, unless you're at pizza blank. They'll receive it. But other than that, we don't have much to worry about with this. But we do have much to worry about a good counterfeit. Same in the church. The problem in the church are those counterfeit teachings that look so close to the real thing that they are in danger of going into circulation in the church. So today's instruction, it's instruction number eight, deals with this very real problem. And the instruction is that we are to reject false teaching. Uh, we are to be very aggressively looking for false teaching. Now, who does this fall to primarily? Who is responsible for taking care of counterfeit money in the system? There's a sense in which we all are, right? If you get what you think is a counterfeit bill, you need to take that to the bank. And that actually happened to me once. I had a $20 bill that I took to the bank because I didn't think it was real. And so they took that counterfeit and gave me a $20 bill. So we're all responsible for rejecting false teaching. But if you're a banker or if you are, uh, work for the Canadian Mint, there are people who are devoted to making sure there isn't counterfeit money in the system. Likewise, it's the shepherd's teachers, the overseers and elders who uh, bear the weight of this responsibility. Uh, we are the ones that, that have to, with all of you, bear the weight of making sure that we don't have false teaching in the church. Let's take a look at the passage itself. Today's passage can be easily divided into three sections. Verses 1 and 2 just alert us to the fact uh, that there will be false teaching in the church. False teaching is a reality. Then you have the first part of verse 3, which is the second part of this passage. And that gives us just one example of false teaching, which we'll look at today. That example we'll see is asceticism. We'll define that and explain that. And then the second half of verse 3, all the way to the end of verse 5 is the rebuttal of false teaching. So once you recognize there's going to be false teaching, once you see an example of false teaching, then we must re refute the false teaching. This is what it means in 1 Timothy 3, 4, when Paul says that overseers must be able to teach. Uh, the very parallel concept is found in Titus 1, 9, which says that 
elders in the church must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to be able to refute those who contradict it. This is, this is all about good currency and identifying and removing false currency in the form of teaching in the church. So let's go through these three parts of the passage. That will be uh, our time together this morning. Part one, the reality of false teaching. Look again with me at verses one and two. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's a mouthful. There's a lot of big words, big concepts, so we're going to break that down. And what we're going to see is this is serious stuff. This is not a marginal concern in the church. This is serious Look at how it starts. The Spirit himself expressly says. Now we don't know how the Holy Spirit has said this expressly, but the Holy Spirit himself has expressly said to Paul, we don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know where. But, but the Holy Spirit has taken upon himself to be very clear with Paul. Uh, Paul, I want you to know from me to you, from God to Paul, This is a reality. There is going to be false teaching. This this is not a possibility. It's not something that might come across the path of the church. The Spirit has been expressed, has expressed himself clearly about this with Paul. God himself is letting us know this is a reality. This is a very serious warning then. We're told that this problem is going to happen in later times, right? The Spirit expressly says that in later times. What is later times? Are we in the later times? We are. How do I know that? Uh, It's not because I know when Jesus is going to return, because I don't, but the later times are post-Jesus. It's from that moment of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down upon those disciples that were waiting for the power from on high. From that point forward, we're in the later times. And and there's prophecy about this, that in the former times, God interacted with you this way, and there was much judgment in the former times. But in the later times, and you you get these prophetic promises, right? Uh, Everyone will know me, and you won't have to teach uh, anyone about me because from the greatest to the least of them, they will know me, and my law will be written on their hearts. I will take out their uh, heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. So that's Jeremiah then, Ezekiel. Uh, Then you have Isaiah that promises about this great deliverance in the later times. So one of the things that the Holy Spirit is saying to Paul is, Just because these prophetic truths are real and true, yes, the law is written on our hearts. Yes, everyone from the greatest of us to the least of us will know the Lord. Nevertheless, even with these hearts of flesh pumping spiritual blood, nevertheless, there's going to be false teachers. And if we're not vigilant, even with all of the benefits of spirit-indwelt New covenant life. Nevertheless, just as in the former times, there are going to be false teachers and they are going to deceive people. And that deception is deadly. It's not, it's not just um, marginal. That deception, if you buy into false teaching, is condemning forever. That's why Jesus says at the last day after the last trumpet when we're all gathered before him some will come to him and say lord lord did we not prophesy in your name did we not drive out demons in your name and jesus will look at some and say depart from me i never knew you that's scary what how's that possible in the later times the spirit's with us the law's written on our hearts Well, the people that Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, are churchgoers who were deceived. This is serious. That's why the Spirit of God takes upon himself to be very clear. This is real. 
What is the source of this false teaching? The source has always been the same. Where is the source of the first false teaching? Serpent in the garden. You will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, you'll become like him. And right before that, what did this false teaching, what was the form that it came in? Did God really say? The source of false teaching is always very persuasive. It starts with just a question. Inciting some doubt. And then once, I don't know, like what did God say and what didn't he say? And then the lies begin to compound until we go from doubt all the way to we're, we're not in Christ's sheepfold anymore. And that's exactly what we find out here. Look, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. This is not about people being saved and then not saved. It's about people who come into the church, they're not regenerate, and then they, they catch a whiff of some false teaching and they go after it. But where's this false teaching coming from? Well, these people who are buying into the false teaching, they're devoting themselves to, do you see it there in verse 1? Deceitful spirits. And the teaching of demons. All false teaching is demonic. All false teaching comes from deceitful spirits. And these deceitful spirits are going to come at us in all ways, shapes, and forms. And the most dangerous to us are the deceitful spirits that are subtle, as we talked about already. Now, very rarely will a person have a face-to-face encounter with a demon. It does happen. But that's rare. But these demons, what they do is they somehow influence men and women in the church through their thinking. And, and there's a variety of ways that these, these demons and deceitful spirits can do that. Uh, they can do it through other false teachers. But they're, they're strategic. And they're thinking, how do I get bad doctrine into the church? And then what they do is they say, well, let's... let's nominate this one and that one and the other over there. Let's try and infiltrate through these people. Now, we live in a really difficult day and age because we've got the internet and we've got radio and we've got uh, global publishing. And, and all of these formats give us wonderful teaching, but they also are the platform for deceitful spirits and demons through men and women who teach lies. And as a shepherd, as a teacher in this church, you know, it's so hard because so much of what we have to do, and this is not directed uh, between me and you, but all shepherds and all churches in this day and age. This is a general statement. There's so much work that the teacher of a local church has to do now to deconstruct what the sheep are getting from outside the pasture. And... So it's really tricky because we get, well, if you're at this church, you get a couple of hours every week to preach. But do you see even how the time has shrunk? It used to be we'd gather a couple times a week, several times a week, come back at night. But now the teachers who have been given oversight over your souls are given, depending on what you hear in pop psychology anywhere from 15 minutes to 35 minutes a week? Is there any other source of influence in your life that you give that little time to? So we have demons trying to steal you from Christ's pasture, and he's going to do it through men and women in this church and outside of this church. And these false teachers are liars. They, they, what that means is they don't speak the truth. Now, when we think of a liar, we think of somebody who deliberately doesn't speak the truth. 
that may or may not apply with these liars. But what, what we know is that these men and women, these liars, are people who speak, thus saith the Lord, but what they say is not what the Lord has said. And that's why they're liars. Now, some of them will know that they are deceiving you, and some of them won't. And the reason I know that is this last part. These liars, look at it in verse 2. So the demons are going to be teaching, usually not directly, but through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Insincerity is a word that means no wax. So in the ancient world, if you had a pot that, that had a crack in it, you just put wax over top of the crack so that nobody could see it. So the insincerity there doesn't even mean that the, these liars, these false teachers, know that they are teaching falsehood. Either they've applied a coat of wax so that they look legit, or someone else has done it for them. It doesn't matter. What matters is they're cracked. What they're trying to promote is not real. It's not accurate to the word of God. Even though they look like legit teachers. That's what that means. And then this, they're liars. They're not saying the truth. And then this third part, their consciences have been seared. Do you know what it means to sear something? It's when you take a hot iron to say some to the end of a rope, and you sear it. So if, if you sear your hand, then you lose the feeling, the ability to feel in your hand. If, you, if I went and just picked up a hot coal, I would sear my hand. Now, when that healed up, it might be that my sense of touch is diminished. I, I can't quite tell if I'm holding something or not, not at least the way I used to be. And that, that's what's being told here, is that these, these liars who look legit but aren't, they're not sincere, that is, they're not the real thing, they may not even know it because they can't even tell if what they say is true or not. Because their, their faculties of discernment, which is here is called the conscience, has been seared somehow. Now, how do you sear someone's faculty of discernment so that they don't know if they're teaching the truth or not? Well, there's a couple of th ways. One... Consciences are seared by sin. A man or a woman who is in the habit of sinning, all of a sudden sin that at one time was awful to them has become acceptable to them. And if in the realm of behavior their conscience has been seared, it's a very half step, a short step to the realm of doctrine. Because you see, our behavior always comes from what we believe. You want to know what you believe? Well, look at your behavior. Do you believe in a final judgment? You can tell by the way you're living your life. Do you live in light of the final judgment? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sin? Well, you, you'll be able to tell that by whether or not you carry your own guilt for your sin. Our behavior is always the the litmus test or the way in which we can truly get at what we believe. And so when we sin and, and we lose the sensitivity to sin, then all of a sudden we shouldn't be surprised when our grasp of the truth follows with. So that's one way. Our consciences can be seared through sin, which impacts not just our behavior but also our beliefs. Uh, but our 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 consciences can also be desensitized by a flood of bad doctrine. If you hear a lie enough times, it'll be very difficult for you to be able to distinguish the difference between the lie that has been washed over you again and again and the truth. And so one of the goals is we need to wash ourselves in the truth more than we're washing ourselves in the lies. And I just can't do that for you because I have limited time to speak into your life. Uh, so bad doctrine, we have, to, we have to be gatekeepers of what goes into our ears doctrinally. Which means it would be really excellent if you have a favorite author to, to bring it to your elders and ask, you know, is this, is this person trustworthy? Because I am washing myself 
in his teaching. I am washing myself in her teaching. Is this person trustworthy? And uh, that's, that's my responsibility in Blair's and Glenn's to, if we haven't read or we don't know that person, we've got to listen to the sermons. We've got to read the books and, and then help you out to, distur- to, to, to discern. And I would ask you that if, if it's someone we haven't heard of, then just take a break. Well, we get up to speed on whether or not that person is trustworthy. But then comes the difficult part. What happens when you bring someone to our attention? We say, yeah, you know, I would stay away. But that's my favorite. Of course, I'm your favorite preacher, right? That's my favorite preacher. How can you tell me that I shouldn't be listening to him? Well, our responsibility is to have oversight over your soul. And there's false teachers out there, and these lies are eternally deadly. So we would ask that you would trust us. And this is, this is all about the relationship between overseers and, and churches, right? If you can't trust your elders doctrinally, this is, this is really, we got we to gotta work on it together then. Yeah, we're in an eternal life and eternal death struggle, and, and the medium of this struggle is the truth. And we're responsible for the truth. So we need to trust each other. You need to trust us. And if you don't, we got to work through that together. So these false teachers are teaching eternally condemning things that are in contradiction to the gospel. Now we get to the second part of the passage, which is just half a verse. And this is the example. And, and it's only an example. We're going to look at this as an example. But it's only an example because we know even in 1 Timothy, in chapter 1, we were de- dealing with legalism. In chapter 6, we're going to be dealing with um, a form of prosperity gospel. And here in chapter 4, we're dealing with asceticism. Take a look at verse 3. These False teachers that are particularly in, in the mind of Paul in this section forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. So this is asceticism. What is asceticism? Asceticism is a rejection of pleasure. Asceticism is a very persuasive teaching, actually. I find that there have been times in my life, not in the the gross, vulgar forms of the teaching, but in the more subtle forms of the teaching, it's very alluring. This idea that I shouldn't be happy, this idea that I shouldn't enjoy something, this idea, for example, I shouldn't derive pleasure in serving because then it's selfish. You ever have that one? Oh, no, I've just served the Lord, but I've enjoyed it. So now it's not worth anything. I mean, that's crazy. That's asceticism. In fact, when we are serving the Lord, we should be at maximum joy. But I'm sure I'm not the only one that has thought, oh, no. If I serve them and like it, then I'm serving myself, and that's wrong. That is the teaching of demons at your doorstep when that happens. Um, In fact, any deprivation of the five senses uh, for the sake of depriving the five senses is asceticism. Any rejection of the physical world as somehow evil or gross or non-spiritual is asceticism. Any bent against physical or emotional pleasure just because it's pleasurable is asceticism. Uh, as I said, a belief that you shouldn't be happy. I just feel more spiritual when I'm miserable is asceticism. An avoidance, for example, of the arts. Because they're enjoyable to my five senses. I I don't want to look at nice paintings because I like nice paintings. There's something nice about it. And what if the painting's not about Jesus? What if it's just like a landscape of a farm? What if I enjoy it? And I'm enjoying something that's not about Jesus. That's a lie. God has made us in his image to be creative through visual arts and dance and theater and all kinds of things. 
And, and one of the things about the Reformation that is too bad is we threw out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church did such a good job, not always good, but a good job overall of being a patron to the arts. Well, what if we start worshiping paintings instead of Jesus? So let's get rid of all of the art. Let's be austere. Let's be minimalistic. Let's not enjoy color too much. This is all asceticism. Let's not enjoy different genres of music. It has to be, it has to be sort of Gregorian chant music. It has to be organ music. It has to be whatever. God loves variety in, in all of the arts. So you see how this sort of, I've, I've taken two examples of asceticism given here, and I've just expanded it. But, but the, the, the issue here in verse 3 is those who forbid marriage, that's very anti-sex. That's what's in mind here. It's not about being against best friends for life. Forbid marriage, why? Because with marriage comes sex. And require abstinence from foods. Oh, man, God gave you taste buds. Don't use them. Right? So this is asceticism. Let me give you a definition. Now I've given you all of these examples. Uh, asceticism is a rejection of the five physical senses, a belief that the more I deprive myself, that's on the shallow end of asceticism, the more that I inflict pain and misery on myself, the more spiritual and holy I am. It's false. And what I'm here to remind us this morning is that that teaching is demonic. I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing that if you say what I've just said to any group of Christians, so again, a general statement, any group of Christians, there's going to be some of, of, of those who are listening who says, oh, the preacher's peddling sin. He's pushing us into sinful use of our five senses. It's not what I'm doing. And, and what I want to just be clear about is demons will push licentiousness, that is, an unrestrained pleasure-seeking. If demons can get you to fall into sin... By unrestrained pleasure-seeking through your five senses, victory for them. But let's say you're not buying what they're selling on the licentious side of things. Well, we're not going to be able to get them that way, so let's get them this way. And there's asceticism's on the other extreme, which is an unrestrained deprivation. So, so we can't be either extreme. I'm not saying let's go and indulge our five senses. Let's not just go home and binge watch all the crude television on Netflix just because it's pleasurable. But on the other hand, don't make silly rules for yourself that make your life more miserable because in those rules you feel like you've somehow attained a level of maturity in your walk with Christ. And what we want to get to in the middle, and this is our third part, the rebuttal is how do we use our five senses to derive maximum pleasure? And I'm not going to qualify that. Because you do not derive maximum pleasure in this world by going down the path of licentiousness. Licentiousness, that's a big word. Do you know what it means? It just means giving yourself license to sin. Getting drunk has a very temporary pleasure. And then you wake up the next morning. And if your body isn't killing you, hurting, then your conscience is, what did I say? What did I do? The road of licentiousness, indulging without restraint your five senses, doesn't give us maximum pleasure. So, so the Christian life, and I don't know that we often think about the Christian life this way, but the Christian life is about Maximum pleasure, which avoids the two extremes. We will have maximum pleasure when we use our five senses the way that God intended us to use them. That will be maximum pleasure. So isn't it wonderful that Christianity is not this great cosmic joy kill? 
And yet how many people say, I would become a Christian except I don't want you to kill my joy. Like you Christians are so boring. You Christians are so austere. You, you Christians are, are always trying to take the fun out of things. Well, shame on us when we do that. But I'm not saying restraining our sin is doing that. And what we have to help people to see is, how much fun are you really having? So do we ever act as though Christianity is this pleasure-averse joy kill? Do we actually ever take it upon ourselves to make sure people are as miserable as we are? You see, we should be enjoying deeper pleasures than anyone else on the face of the earth. When people look to us, they say, wow, the joie de vivre in that group of people is off the charts. They just love life, and, and they love the feel of a nice downy blanket on top of them. They, they love the taste of excellent dessert. They love the smells of great candles and campfires. Oh, they love all kinds of music, and they are patrons to the arts. And when you gather to worship with them, man, there's all different expressions of how they are thanking God for what God has done. I mean, that, that's a church that people are, oh, just check it out. Because I'm tired of waking up with a splitting headache. I'm tired of being filled with regrets. I'm tired of this life that promises to deliver something, but never, ever, ever delivers. And our, our world is, is hungry for that, you know. And the secret is out. The world does not deliver the things that the world says it will deliver. That's why depression is at an all-time high because everything just falls short except for Jesus. And five senses submitted to the Lordship of Christ. The greatest pleasure in the world is that father-child relationship that we have with God and everything that comes with it. And, and if you read Ephesians 1, do you ever, uh, we've gone through this, so I know you've thought about this. Do you know that God promises to give us everything that he has to give? He's not holding anything back. Everything that the Father has given to his one son, Jesus, by adoption, he's given it to all of us. Who doesn't want that? John Piper says that God is most glorified in us when we are most glorified in him, or when we are most satisfied in him. John Piper, trustworthy. Read his books, listen to his sermons. Is he perfect? No. He's trustworthy. So let us not be fooled. There's no lasting pleasure in sin. The pleasures of sin are real. I don't want to go to the other extreme and say there's no pleasure in sin. If there's no pleasure in sin, who's sinning? I, I still sometimes long for the pleasures of sin. Do you? But that pleasure is so short-lasting. It's so fleeting. And then it's laced with poison pain. If you're struggling with a sin, explore the pain of that sin. And then the pleasure will seem so not worth it. Now we come to the rebuttal of false teaching. Second half of verse 3 all the way to the end of verse 5. God has created these things, that is marriage and food to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So what we see here is an example of what your overseers need to be doing. We need to identify what is the sin, or what is the false teaching, sorry, and then we need to rebut it. And this is an example of how we might do that. I just want to remind you that everything that God created is good. I want to remind you that he wants you to receive it with thanksgiving. I want you to remind you that, that nothing that God has created is to be rejected because it's holy. And it's, we know that because the Word of God tells us that and because prayer orients us to that. Let me just unpack this for us and we'll be done. That God created the world and everything in it to be received with thanksgiving. 
So the sin of enjoying your five senses is not giving thanks to God. Every day, like every moment of every day, it's a beautiful day. I love the, the way the, 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 the sun and the clouds are up there. Thank you, God. That's beautiful. Thank you that I can see it. That's a great way to pray without ceasing, by the way. If you're continually thanking God for all of the pleasures in your path, then you're praying without ceasing. But let me just say, as I reiterate what I've already said, God did not give us a desire for sex and then say, don't have sex. But he said, if you have sex outside of a committed Christ-honoring marriage, it'll be laced with poison pain. So get married. Then enjoy one another. God did not give us taste buds and say, don't taste anything delicious. God did not give us thirst and then say, don't drink water. You know, it's just logical. But God created everything and it's supposed to be received with thanksgiving by whom? This is very important here. By those who believe and know the truth. And this is a nice corrective on, on not walking down the road to licentiousness. Everything is to be used as God intended it to be used. That's how we will derive maximum pleasure. And the only people that know how to use the creation that God has created are those who believe and know the truth. See, by believing and knowing the truth, God gives us insight into these mysteries. How can we derive maximum pleasure from our five senses? Well, the Word of God tells us. We believe the Word of God, and the more we understand it, the more we know the truth of God's Word, the better equipped we will be to use our five senses to find maximum joy in the world. So we have an advantage over the rest of the world. The world can't see that extramarital affairs are not pleasurable. The world can't see that, but we can see it. The world can't see that eating delicious food in moderation is better than overeating or undereating. The world can't see that. But we can see it. So, so this is really only believers can do this. Believers who are committed to the truth. Belief plus a knowledge of the truth equals the right use of God's creation. Then we get to this. Everything created by God is good in verse 4. The fit, there's a... This asceticism leads to a heresy called Gnosticism, which basically says spiritual and physical need to be separated from one another. Spiritual is good, physical is bad. There is a popular Gnosticism alive and well in the church in North America today. It may be alive and well in this church. I, I don't know. But do you ever find yourself at that place where you think, I just, spir there's spiritual things and there's physical things. Do you know that you cannot do a single spiritual thing without your body? Do you know that God has not come to give us escape from the physical creation, but he sent Jesus to redeem the creation, which is physical? Which means that when Christ returns, if we are in the grave, our bodies are going to be raised from the dead. So we, we cannot have this false distinction between spiritual and physical. The most spiritual thing you will ever do is with your body, which is to be raised from the dead. And then in your glorified body, living for Christ forever and ever. And this universe that we're in is going to be glorified and we're going to live here. We're not floating around in the clouds eating uh, Philadelphia cream cheese. In some ethereal state, we're going to be living in earth, soil, environment. The physical world is not evil. It's good. We've corrupted it, yes, but Christ has come to redeem it. So as the church, we participate in that redemption by, in, in our own small way, redeeming the physical world in our own life now, including the way we use our bodies now, the way we enjoy creation now. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected. I even, I fell into worship 
a couple years ago when I opened my garbage can and it was filled with little maggots. That's pretty gross. Little white worms just eating the garbage. Gross. And I began to worship God. Everything created by God is good. Why? God, God gave us maggots, praise God, to break down our garbage. Right? Scavenger animals are kind of gross, but they clean up the world. Praise God. Like everything created by God is good. Nothing, don't reject the maggots. I don't know what mosquitoes are good for, but everything created by God is good. Now, there's a big if in the text, though. If we receive it with thanksgiving. This is a great check against sin. You cannot thank God for sin. So you cannot actually go wrong if what you're doing with your five senses at the same time you can thank God. So next time you're doing something, can you thank God for it? If not, stop doing it. Why? Not because you should, but because you remember that what you're doing, though there is some pleasure in it, it's laced with poison pain. And you're not going to get maximum pleasure from whatever you're doing if you cannot thank God. And it's made holy by the word of God. And we see this in Genesis 1. That's all he's saying. Remember, when God created, he says, it is good. He created. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. And then we ruined it. But it's still good because God created it. And prayer. It is made holy by prayer. What does that mean? Well, it's sort of like giving thanks to God. We sanctify the use of our five senses by prayer. What, what that means is we orient ourselves toward God and his word when we pray. And if we prayerfully indulge in our five senses giving thanks to God, we will be using them properly. Asceticism then is just one example of false teaching. The instruction is more broad. This is exemplary. We must reject false teaching, whether it's legalism, asceticism, Gnosticism, prosperity gospel, whatever it is. Asceticism is one example of false teaching. We must reject false teaching. All of us need to be working together for that, and we as a church must trust the elders to really identify and uproot false teaching. We cannot put up with false teaching in the name of grace. This is where Canadians get into all kinds of trouble. Well, yeah, it's a little awkward if you start talking about that's wrong. Well, we cannot put up with false teaching in the name of grace or in the name of kindness or in the name of patience. Every false teaching must be addressed because it is eternally deadly. Now, each instance of false teaching must be addressed according to the measure of its influence in the church. So we don't uproot everything altogether all at once in the same way. Those who have greater authority and influence in the church, if they're teaching something false, that has to be dealt with first, and so on. And, and the, the destructive nature of whatever the false teaching is has to be taken into consideration as well. Let us just say, there is no place in the church, I said it earlier, for a determined legalism. We're all legalistic a little bit, so we're constantly working on that. But anyone who's promoting legalism, we have to deal with it. Likewise, there's no place in the church for a determined asceticism. That is, someone who is so entrenched in asceticism that they cannot be instructed out of it. We're all going to be asceticists partially here and there in our life. But let's remind ourselves in those moments that this is not God's gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for this instruction that we are to reject false teaching. And I pray that you will help us to be people of the truth. That more and more as we read your scriptures and speak of your scriptures and sit under the teaching of your word, that your word would wash over us, we'd be able to identify that which is false, that we would reject anything that is not from you. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. I'm tempted to preach another one. But I, I do have a postscript uh, based on Duncan's question. It was a great question. Uh, he asked about C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a great influence in my life. Uh, but he believes in purgatory, for example. I don't believe in purgatory. We don't believe in purgatory. Which, which I think, I don't know if we're recording, but it maybe is helpful in case somebody just listens to that um, sermon. Really helpful and really important to know that orthodoxy, that is right belief, is not a tightrope on which we're like trying to stay balanced and like you can fall this way or that way in the slightest half step. And a lot of Christians treat orthodoxy that way. And, and then just tensions are high. Everybody's so like frightened all the time about what if we get this a little bit wrong? I can't imagine God ever setting it up that way. No room for error. Orthodoxy, that is right belief, is a, a stream, a wide stream. Now, when I say wide, that's relative to the tightrope. We can disagree about things and still be in safe territory. There are some things that are outside. They're on the banks and beyond of that stream. So we need to stay not on a tightrope of orthodoxy, just really hoping that we don't fall. But let's like get in our kayaks and, and just go down this stream together. I'm going to be over here for a little bit while you're over there. How's the bank look over there? And this one's quite pretty. And then I'm going to come over here, and you might just sort of zigzag the other way. And for a while, we'll be right close together. This is so important because it's impossible. It's like, it's like herding cats to try and keep everyone on a tightrope. But if we can just go down the same river together, then we'll be doing all right. So it's an important postscript. I read C.S. Lewis, but he's, his words are not authoritative and he doesn't get everything right. Amen? Just to reinforce our, that was my sermon number two, postscript of sermon one. Uh, thanks for the question, Duncan. Good question. Uh, talk about this in your discipleship groups. I, don't, I have no idea where I was going for my benediction. <laughs> but I want to leave you with this thought. This is a benedictory thought. Throughout the Bible, we are told that God will host a banquet for us. That's where I was going, Isaiah 25. And at this banquet, there's going to be the best meat, the fatty parts of tasty beasts. I love that translation. <laughs> It sounds Dr. Zeus kind of. And in well-aged wine, that's going to be a spiritual moment when we're all raised in glory in bodies and the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorified body serves us food, meat, and wine. So go and enjoy your senses in service to Christ. God bless you.